You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Hey all, Michael here. I'm one of the pastors of the Village Church. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. This is the 21st sermon in this series, and we have just two more after this. And then we'll take a long pause and, and probably finish up uh, sometime next year uh, through Exodus. And so uh, as we get to know God and, and his story and, and the relationship with his people, there are a lot of questions around why God does what he does. And as we're journeying through Exodus, we, we see some things that, man, they're, they're curious. Like, like God's people had been suffering in Egypt for hundreds of years. And then God shows up and he calls this guy Moses to himself. And, and, and he uses Moses as this kind of stand-in savior uh, to stand between God and the people and between Pharaoh and the people. And then we see God work through the hardness of, of this, this uh, king Pharaoh, the hardness of his heart, uh, as he leads Egypt to hold God's people captive. And, and then we see this interplay between Pharaoh hardening his own heart and God being involved in hardening Pharaoh's heart. And then we see uh, that continue over into the plagues where God, you know, he, he decimates and, and ten strikes against Egypt and against Pharaoh. And, and ultimately, Egypt says, man, just get out of here. And then, and then they chase him down and, and just all these things. And, and now we see them freed after God's work at the Red Sea to, to kind of destroy Egypt as they followed uh, uh, the Hebrews and, and chased them. Then we see them wandering around and we see them, man, just committing sin and idolatry and, and they're confused and, and they just, they make terrible choices. And, and we might just say, why? Why not just transport them from Egypt to the promised land? Why have them wander around for 40 years and why do we get to like as you're reading this it's almost like you want to wince as you just can hardly watch the the lack of faithfulness that God's people demonstrate but A.W. Pink in his book Gleanings in Exodus he helps us he helps us see why God might be doing that here's what he says had Israel been transported from Egypt to Canaan that is the promised land they would not have made such sad exhibitions of what the human heart is. And as a consequence, they would not have proved such admirable examples or types for us. But the 40 years wandering in the desert furnish us with a volume of warning, admonition, and instruction fruitful beyond conception. In other words, he's telling us this, that, that some things never change. Uh, or at least some things in the human heart continually make their way in and they, they creep up and they creep in. And when we see it all unfold, we can't help but to draw parallels between them and us and, and uh, there's nothing more explicit than the last line of this focal passage that Emmy read for us this morning. The last line uh, is kind of a short text. 
and, and it brings it over the river and, and through the woods, through thousands of, of years of revelation, all the way into our living rooms, and by God's grace and the work of the Spirit into our hearts today. And this is what, this is uh, Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. So this is the end of our focal text. It says, And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? At the end of last chapter, Moses, uh, God had provided food in the wilderness and, and quail in the evening and manna, uh, the stuff uh, by day. And, and it was really about the people depending upon God as, as provider and, and trusting him to be faithful. Um, Moses, he stows away some manna in a jar uh, and ultimately, that would be part of Israel's t kind of like a time capsule where the, the Ten Commandments would be held and the Ark of the Covenant. And this was part of, of that stuff so that they might remember God's provision. And here we see Moses remembering not only the good uh, provision of God, like in last chapter, but we see him remembering the not so good of his people. See, the names of these places, Massah, and, uh, and Meribah, they mean trial and quarreling. And so Moses is saying, man, do you remember this place where, where we're coming together? Um, do, you, do you remember how you just, you just whined all the time? And he wanted us to remember. He wanted those beyond to remember um, just this, this wandering trial and, and complaining and quarreling that they had. And so, in, in, and this is important, uh, not only is it important for them to remember the, the good nature and provision of God, but it's also important for them to remember uh, their wandering hearts. And the same is true for us. We get to see and read and be encouraged by God's provision, not only in their lives, but in our own lives. And we also get to reflect on their failures, and we get to let that point to our own failures, uh, God's wins and our losses, God's rescue and our failure. And with few exceptions, the Bible is about a faithful God uh, showing up and calling to himself a faithless humanity. But the question that is flushed from their trial and complaint is a great reflection for us. And it's this, is the Lord among us or not? If ever there was a slap in the face question that they might be asking, this seems it. After all that God has done, is, is God with us or not? But, but, but also, if ever there was a question asked throughout every generation, it's, it's this, is the Lord with us or not? And up to this point, God has been testing the faithfulness of Israel understandably. Here we see them, they test God. They return the favor. And what we see about testing in the scriptures later on, we see in the book of Deuteronomy, we see this line, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah, at this place. And so it's pointing back with a negative light shining bright on the heart of Israel and God's people here. It's saying this is not, this is not a good thing to test God. It's, it's, frowned, it's frowned upon. In fact, later on we see that, that uh, testing God is the devil's work as he tests Jesus. Um, 
So when we face trials in this life, especially those who walk with God, those of us who are walking with God and we encounter trials, things where we might uh, find it difficult or, or things that we come against that we don't necessarily embrace, those things we question, we question devotion, we question love, we question plans, we question competence. And, and like this shows us, we even question God's presence. God has done nothing but provide, yet his hard-hearted people seem as dense as Pharaoh regarding their faith and their, their belief. And the Bible teaches us two things that, that set this up for us. The first one is, is uh, trials are a good thing, right? No one likes trials. But what the Bible teaches us is that trials are a good thing. And in fact, James says it this way. He says, count it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Test, uh, when, when you face trials of many kinds. And then it goes on to describe what those trials do. And then the second thing we see is, is testing God is the devil's work. Um, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Messiah. We see that and we see, again, Jesus being tempted literally by Satan himself uh, to put God to the test. So, so the Bible often helps us observe with a, with a little greater clarity as we look at the hearts of God's people. And what we see here is to test God is to challenge trust, but he passes every trial. So here we are, Exodus 17, 1 through seven in this series, Captive Set Free. Um, and the first point, and, and there are only two, and then kind of a tag on at the end. The first point that we see is this, that trials test trust. Uh, let me read this. I want to read 17 verse one through three. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. So they were kind of a, a little by little, according to the commandment of the Lord and they camped at Rephidim. You get that? I think that's exactly how you say it. Um, that word has a special meaning we'll get to in a few minutes. It actually means peace. And so just keep that in mind. But there, there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. I mean, you can almost imagine as if Moses isn't thirsty as well as if he's holding the canteen. Um, and Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Right? He's saying, why, why are you fighting me? Why are you always on my back? Why do you test the Lord? That's what Moses says. But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? All kinds of things wrong here. And again, we see how sin clouds judgment. That they are making terrible decisions. They are not seeing things clearly. So, all that God has done, uh, specifically by His own hand, and all that He has done through His servant Moses, and they find themselves, all that He's delivered them from, they were slaves and now they are free. And yet, they find themselves thirsty, you know, uh, Two days before this, they were, they were hangry, running around in the, in the desert trying to find some food and, and putting everybody on blast. What we see is, is complaint and demand, and then we, we see an accusation of a, of a murder plot. 
They're just not thinking clearly. Based on what we've seen, I imagine that there would have been no way to please these people. Okay? Suppose they had the best lemonade uh, that the desert could offer. And, and the choicest breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I'm sure they would have found something to complain and grumble and even threaten about. And last week we looked at how, how complaint is just human nature. That's what we do. And so we see this on display that, that they aren't going to be at peace with any provision, even though the place that they're at is called peace. All right. So, so in this, we see some things in them that we also see in us that, that familiarity brings numbness. They are now free. They are their own people walking with God who is before them. Uh, they're walking with their servant, with God's servant Moses, and, and they're being led somewhere, and, and they encounter trial. Uh, they're having a bad day, and they're trying to find something to drink. Um, and so we see that, that familiarity brings numbness, right? They're, they're free, and they're already beginning to just um, let that numbness bring them to a place of entitlement. And, and then uh, unmet entitlement, it brings contention. It brings tension between them and, and wherever they're putting their trust. Provide or die. That's what they say. We might call that an ultimatum. And, and it's tough to tell if they have confidence in God that he's the one that has delivered them. Uh, if, if they're saying, all right, Moses, uh, we're going to kill you unless you provide or if they're saying, like, we're going to kill you, Moses, and maybe that might force the hand of God to provide for us. And so uh, that's, ult- that, that's an ultimatum that they're putting on God. It's, it's manipulation. They're saying, give us Gatorade or Moses is going to die. They know that Moses can't make water. They, they have to know that. And, and we'd never try to give God uh, an ultimatum so directly like that, would we? Or, or maybe we would do that. So, so there's... Much debate in this life around education and, and in the world of testing in particular. Uh, to standardize test or to not do that. Uh, to have a standardized test um, means that we need to have equal playing fields for all students in all cities and all demographics, and, and that's not true. So there's all kinds of, of tension around that. But if we could just lay that aside for just a second. Um, why do we test anything at all? In math, you probably have tests. A, a middle school math class at some point will, will put those students to the test to make sure that they know the content. Um, you probably have to test and, and take a driver's test a, a little later on um, to prove that you can drive, right? Uh, if there is an incident at work, you're probably going to have to take a drug test. Why do we do that? Because someone's word isn't enough. It is not enough for a middle schooler to say, yeah, I understand these math concepts. It is not enough for a 16-year-old driver to say, yeah, I'm a competent, capable, safe driver. Give me my license and give me the keys. That's not enough. We, we have to allow them to prove that. Um, when someone... Uh, has an incident at work and, and, you know, something gets injured or whatever, it's not enough to say, uh, I am not currently um, on any uh, drugs that would change the way that my, my brain is working. Yet, none of those things are good enough. You know math, prove it. 
Uh, you can drive? Prove it. You're sober? Prove it. So when God told us last chapter, and this is in 16, 3 or 4-ish, he said, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. This is what he says, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So, so what God is, is telling them is, is you're faithful to me? Prove it. You know that I'm God and you're not? Prove it. You're willing to, to, to be obedient to, to me, the only creator God who makes all things and, and sets humanity and all creation up for flourishing? The way that you prove that is, is trusting me. And so he says, I test them. So, so what God's saying is, is um, can he trust us? God sifts hearts. And, and he has all the right to do that. But, but here's the beauty of this. God doesn't need you to prove anything by taking a test. He already knows the answer. He already knows where our hearts lie. He already knows what's going to come out of us. But his tests, like, just think about this for a second. What if God's testing wasn't for, for him, who already knows the motives of our hearts? But what if his testing was for us, because we might not know the motives of our own hearts? Which given the track record of, of God's people, the, the lack of devotion, their faithlessness, man, all that is totally fair that God would do that to us, for us. But, but what Israel is doing here, they're returning the test. Can you imagine uh, uh, that middle school math teacher putting the, the paper out and, and as the students sit down to take that test, one of them says, uh, I am competent here. I'm not sure that you are, so I'm going to give this test back to you so that you might take it so that I can see if you know this content. Or can you imagine when the 16-year-old gets in the, the car next to the driving instructor and the, the kid says, okay, uh, we're going to switch places. I'm going to give you the keys, and I'm going to test you to make sure that you can drive this vehicle safely. Right? That's, that's not the way things where God is nothing but faithful because by his nature, his ways and his intentions and his provision and his track record is perfect. So how is it that trials are good? Well, I think of it like this, like a, a parent-child relationship. Never would a good parent give a child everything they wanted, even if they were able to. Not because the parent's mean, they're not trying to be mean, but because the parent is kind. They're mindful of beyond the moment. They know what it would do to a kid if they just said yes time and time again. Time and time again. Kids want things not best for them. And a yes every time over time will build a false reality for that child. This life is, is tough and we have to learn and we have to work hard and we have to navigate things and we have to deal with the broken parts of this life 
to constantly, every single time, say yes is a disservice to that child, both in the moment and in the future. For a child, a trial might be the word no. When, when that parent says no, that's a trial. And, and for a teenager, maybe it's, it's no, you can't go out with those people and that's devastating. And, and, and for real life, that, that's a difficult thing that puts social pressure and, and all those things, those, those are real things. Uh, to Israel, it is uh, historic stress. And, and in this moment, a few days without food, a few days without water, and, and for us, man, it, it can range all over the place from, from a basic inconvenience like, like our washing machine uh, makes a squeaking noise all the way to devastating loss and suffering and, and even death that might seem beyond us being able to bear. <clears throat> but in all of those things, no matter the trials, trials do two things. They expose what's already in us, right? Or, or uh, as the point says, trials test trust. They show us where we turn when things go bad. They, they force what's inside of us to the surface. And secondly, they shape us for later. <clears throat> the Bible talks about this in lots of places. In the New Testament, it says, those who remain steadfast uh, in the face of trial will receive the crown of life that God promised for those who love him. And in another place, it says that, that trials produce endurance. And endurance produces character. Character is only forged by repetition and over time. Um, and so, so trial produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Or in other words, trials test trust. They reveal where our trust lies and they prepare us for future trial. So the point in all of this is, is when we face trials, when we face suffering of, of various types, we get to, just like they didn't do, we get to reflect on where we turn. When things don't go as you planned, and they won't, they will not always go as you planned, um, we can cry, why me? And we can say, this isn't fair. Um, we can say, God, are, are you there? Um, is God here or not? We can, we can begin to doubt even his existence and his observation of our life and his, and his presence in our life. Uh, Israel, they blame and they, they coerce. Um, and, and, and maybe they, they concoct a murder plot um, as if they would coerce God to serve them by threatening his guy, Moses. But Moses, what we see in him, he turns to a different place. I'm going to read it in verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So we see how the people respond. They blame, they coerce, they, they plot. What we see in Moses, he turns a different way. And what we see is, is the second point. Prayer proves dependence. Moses, he doesn't freak out. Uh, he's been through this before. 
Uh, he does what the steadfast and what the faithful do when, when we encounter trial or, or for him, uh, they didn't have water. Moses doesn't have water, but his more pressing trial seems to be the people in his care. That's what he turns to the Lord about. What am I going to do with these people? Where does Moses turn? He, he calmly leans into the God who has provided and who he knows is present. Now you might think that Moses would be numb to this cycle, this, this relationship circle where, where God delivers and, and then shortly after the people doubt and then they fear and then they turn and they grumble and they complain and, and God delivers and they have faith and they might even sing a song and then you turn the page and they doubt and they fear. And, and so this cycle, man, how, how do we keep from becoming numb in our relationship with God and, and these cycles of sin that we see patterns of life that undoubtedly we will see in our own lives and certainly as we uh, maybe have a family or we have people in our care that we want them to walk with the Lord how do we be how do we prevent from becoming numb as we care for ourselves and for others man I was on a call just yesterday um, it was for Acts 29 the, the US Acts 29 and so there were a couple hundred of my closest friends, right, uh, throughout the X29 network, and and the call was with um, Paul Tripp, and he's most known by having a, a just a righteous mustache, but beyond that, he's written some books, and and he pastors pastors, um, super gospel-minded servant of the Lord that's that's been tremendous in in his writing and his encouragement. To many, and um, so he was on that, and, and he was taking questions, and and one of the questions was, how do you maintain fervor? Just kind of the same the same question. How do you maintain fervor? Uh, how do you not grow numb for God and and the task at hand to lead His people? And I thought his insight was super helpful. It was good for my soul. Maybe it will be to yours. He said, look, he said I have a whole bunch of people that I care for, uh, starting with myself and those in, in my, my family and my sphere and, and then outside of that as well. Every morning, I have to hand those people over to God in prayer. That's exactly what Moses does when he faces trial. But my guess is the key to doing this when the going gets tough is, is like Paul Tripp said, that, that in the morning when the going isn't tough, we get to acknowledge our, uh, our wandering hearts. We get to acknowledge our own capacity that, that we can't even lead ourselves, let alone those around us that God has put in our care. And, and we get to we get to turn to God before the trial, during the trial, as we see Moses do. After trial and difficulty, we get to point back and we get to thank God for his provision as he provides. That's what I want to do. Um, and, and, and I can't, I cannot care for all of those in my care. I, I cannot care 
even for myself at times. But, but God has, and God is, and God continues to. He can. So when, when you face trials, those things that life brings that we wouldn't desire or bring upon ourselves, do you lash out? Do you attack? Do you blame? Do you, do you doubt? Do you assume that God isn't near or, or wonder where, he, where he's gone? Or do you turn to him knowing that he isn't napping, that he isn't ignorant, but that he is present and he might be using your very situation not to, to, to bring you out of it, not to send you around it, but to push you through it for your good? I mean, that's how I want to think about the things that, that come in to my life and, and the trials and the difficulties. At the beginning of this, um, in, in the intro, I made some connections between how we get to identify with, with the wanderings of, of their hearts and, and their 40 years uh, of difficulty and, and wandering was really good for us, right? We get to reflect on our own lives as we look at, at their failures and, and God's provision. Um, in, in preacher talk, what, what I say is, is we get to point to universal truths that we share with the original hearers and those that experienced um, these encounters and, and this story, those who lived it. We get to identify with them and, and just pulling out universal truths that we see in their life and that we also see in our life. But the reality is we also have um, universal rescue that we get to glean with them and even beyond because we have more revelation of who God is and, and God's word um, beyond them. So, so God uses them to show us who we are. And I want to show you some connections of God's provision and rescue. See, this, this was never about water. And we can draw that conclusion because of, of how this ends, right? We don't see them kicking back and drinking. Let me read this. I'm going to read verse 5 through uh, 6 and 7. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Super important. Not just any staff, but the one that you used to judge Egypt by my power. So he says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb. Horeb, incidentally, um, is, is the place where he showed up to Moses in the burning bush that, that got all this stuff started. He says, And you shall strike the rock right, with that staff, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name uh, uh, of that place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? See, we say and we show, and, and as a preacher, I labor to preach. We desire as the village church that we might live with Christ at the center of our lives, of our thoughts, of all of history, and certainly at the center of the Bible. And what that means is that all things point to Him. Um, this is what we call like a, a Christ-centered 
worldview. It's a Christ-centered view of the scriptures in contrast to what we might call a man-centered view of the scriptures. Um, We read every page with Christ in mind. And as we've been seeing, God shows us, and in his rescue of Egypt, he, he lays breadcrumbs for us that we might be drawn to understand how his rescue connects uh, in, even, in, in an even more full way to Christ and his rescue to us. But here, we see Paul give commentary on this incident. Um, this is the New Testament speaking to this very situation that we're reading about in the Old Testament. And, and here's what it is. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, and I want to read and then I'll explain a little bit. He says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and they all ate the same spiritual food, right? In, in Exodus, they ate literal food. But here he says they ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Right? This is not about water. It's about trusting in the God who provides. And then I want you to see what he says next. For they drank from the, from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he goes on, he talks about some idolatry and some other ways that they failed. He says we must, this is verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test. So just as they were testing in in Exodus 17, uh, having to do with the drink, he says we must not put Christ to the test. As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Can you believe the beauty of the story that God unfolds for us? That he allowed them to endure so that that we might benefit He says, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overcome, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Man, there's so much stuff. I know we don't have... Uh, any time, but 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 I wanted you to see this that that we test God. God never leaves. He stood before them as the rock. He stands before us. He was struck by the staff that to that point had only been used for judgment to judge the wicked. But what we see is he, he says, "Strike me, the rock." And so what we see is is he steps into our place when God should have struck the wayward Israelites who are mumbling and grumbling and complaining and threatening to kill Moses. He should have struck them, but instead he took the shot. He steps into our place. He is stricken by the rod of judgment and from him 
flows streams of living water providing not judgment, but blessing even when we were putting his faithfulness on trial. So when we ask the question, God, where are you? Uh, Do you really love me? Prove it. Um, Did you rescue me from my sin? Prove it. God, are you even there? Prove it. We get to learn and grow from those who have gone before us. And we get to have peace and we get to be satisfied by Christ the rock who if we drink of him lets us never thirst again.